0: You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State
1: Penitentiary, you walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate's understood stood there. If you're out there and past, here and lay down and do that. Those inmates that here in the institution during an execution. It had an impression on them that maybe I was still with them and to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it it had a, an impression on them. I'm sure they wouldn't let me out until we get back that stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I give it back to them. That was one of the one of the problems we ran into. Is you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place, smoking and joking and drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to, to get under your skin some way or, or try to.
0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated and worked here. My name is Anthony. I'm talking to Skye. How's it going, Sky?
1: Oh, uh, Things are just as the same as they ever were. <laughs> See any <laughs> previous right. episode about how I'm feeling about being in Texas for the summer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man.
1: How are things going with you?
0: You know, just just plugging away and celebrate Dennis the Cat Day and the importance of uh, different animals to prisons. So
1: yeah, <laughs> everyone loves Not Dennis. Not too bad. Yeah, yeah. Should we, should we, pun intended, dig into our last uh, episode <laughs> of the season?
0: Let's tie a bow on mining in Idaho. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow! What a season! <laughs>
1: what a season! I will say, I. Did not know anything about mining when I started this. So hopefully all of our listeners learned something new, whether it was about the inmates or whether it was about mining. Um, I will say i'm I am even more proud of our state than I was mm-hmm. before we started because the mining history just is fascinating.
0: It's so wild. yeah, I knew it, how important it was. Well, I didn't know how important it was. Right. I knew it was important, but wow. How essential to us being here right now.
1: Like, exactly.
0: Jeez. Yeah. yeah. So, so much development. And yeah.
1: Very cool. All well, right. so sources for this episode were the mining sources that I listed in episode 62. Ghost slash mining towns on visitidaho.org. Idaho ghost towns on ghost towns.com. Historicsilvercityidaho.com. Articles on WesternMiningHistory.com of Bonanza, Idaho, Bay Horse, Idaho, and Silver City, Idaho. The Mineral Industry of Idaho by the National Minerals Information Center at the USGeologicalSociety.gov, USGS.gov. Idaho Mining and Exploration 2021 presentation by Virginia S. Gillerman from the Idaho Geological Survey. An article by Michael Holtz from The Atlantic magazine from January twenty fourth, 2022, titled Idaho is Sitting on One of the Most Important Elements on Earth, and then Wikipedia articles for Dragline Mining, Bonanza, Idaho, Bayhorse, Idaho, and Silver City, Idaho.
0: As mining operations continued throughout the territory, it became clear that the territory would need a United States Assay Office, Assay offices were set up to test the purity,
1: the meaning of the verb assay,
0: of precious metals. In 1869, Congress approved $75,000 to establish an assay office in Boise. This office became the second oldest assay office in the West, second only to Denver, which eventually became a U.S. Mint in 1909. Besides the fact that the Idaho Territory was pulling so much gold out of the land, it was also a more central location for an office, since transporting bulky, heavy ores to the U.S. Mint in San Francisco proved incredibly difficult and expensive. Alexander Rossi, a prominent Boise citizen, donated the land, and ground was broken in 1870 before completion a year later in 1871. The first floor of the building held the assayer's office, Faults and safes, assaying and melting rooms, and storage, while the second floor was the living quarters for the chief assayer. By the time of the first assay in March 1872, the territory's mining operations were in a slump due to overwork of surface mines. A decade later, fortunes would change, and several millions of dollars worth of precious metals passed through the doors of the Boise Assay Office before it closed in 1933. It is currently owned by the Idaho State Historical Society hosting the State Historic Preservation Office, sitting at 210 Main Street.
1: Between 1st and 2nd, and Main and Idaho.
0: On its own block.
1: It's a pretty cool building. I briefly worked there, and it's pretty neat.
0: It's so awesome. And last week's episode with Dan Everhart, his office was where the Chief Assayer's office was. You can still see the remains of where the vault was in his office. So fascinating. He just gave me a tour of it last week, and it was ah oh, such an incredible Walk through history.
1: That's pretty cool. So compared to mining discoveries in nearly every year of the 1860s, as we discussed in our first mining episode, there were far fewer discoveries in the 1870s. First at Loon Creek in the Upper Salmon River in 1869, in the southeastern part of the territory in what was called the Caribou Gold Rush in 1870, named after Jesse Caribou Jack Fairchild after he discovered gold in Soda Springs in 1870.
0: Now part of Caribou County.
1: So named after... You know, Carabay Jack. I love that name. I know, it's a good one. Then there were quartz discoveries in the General Custer Mine at the Upper Salmon River in 1876, the Vienna and Sawtooth Mines at the head of the Salmon River in 1878, and the Wood River Mining Rush in 1879. But the citizens of the territory had no reason to doubt the sustainability of mining.
0: The passage of the General Mining Act of 1872, exactly 150 years ago, promised only more mining, not just in Idaho, but throughout the entire West. On May 10, 1872, after being passed by the 42nd Congress and signed by President Ulysses S. Grant, General Mining Act codified the previously informal system of acquiring and protecting mining claims in public land. This law permitted
1: and continues to permit
0: individuals and corporations to prospect on public domain lands and to stake claims on mineral discoveries they make. The main purposes of this law were to, quote, promote mineral exploration and development on federal lands on the Western United States, offer an opportunity to obtain a clear title to mines already being worked and help settle the West, end quote. To break down the law. If a prospector discovers an area that he or she believes may contain valuable minerals, he or she may stake a claim on the land. Though the claimant does not ever have to prove that the claim will produce, they do have to pay fees to maintain the claim. If the claimant determines that a deposit to which they have staked a claim is, quote, economically recoverable, end quote, or they have performed development work on the claim equaling at least $500, $500, They may file for a patent to obtain the title for both the surface and mineral rights of the land, though they do not have to file a patent to develop minerals on the claim. However, if the patent application is approved, the claimant can purchase the title to the land surface and mineral rights. The price of land ranges from $2.50 to $5 an acre. Under this claim patent system, Claimants are not required to pay royalties to the federal government on minerals recovered from public lands. This law allows anyone who has the money or inclination to be a miner to succeed at mining. At its passage, the law applied to 19 states territories, nearly all of them west of Texas, including Alaska.
1: But the exceptions to the states in the west were Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. As mines in northern and southwestern Idaho continued to produce, population boomed throughout the territory, but unity was all but secure. According to retired Idaho state historian Keith Peterson, the North tried to break away from the South, while Nevada was making a play to annex southern Idaho for its mining production. In 1887, both houses of the Senate passed a bill allowing the Idaho Panhandle to secede from the territory and join Washington. All that was required was President Grover Cleveland's signature— which he refused to do, pocket-vetoing it, meaning he simply left it on his desk until it was too late for the law to take effect. In 1888, Republicans won the presidency and both houses of the Senate and Idaho after disenfranchising the large Mormon Democratic voting bloc suddenly had powerful allies in Washington, D.C., to quote Keith Peterson, quote, "...all of a sudden the idea of Idaho perhaps becoming a state gained great momentum."
0: In the summer of 1889, territorial officials were advised to go ahead with a constitutional convention, though the territorial legislature refused to provide funds and a clear process for sending delegates for a constitutional convention themselves. Though Congress was expected to cover the costs, lack of cooperation from the territorial representatives made it difficult. Nevertheless, Territorial Governor A.E. Stevenson went ahead with arrangements, calling a Constitutional Convention on April 2, 1889. After some trouble getting county delegates to the convention and Governor Stevenson, the only Democratic Territorial Governor in a Republican territory, being removed from office in May, a territorial constitution was written and ratified by the convention on November 5, 1889. Congress approved the ratification on July 3, 1890. Idaho was officially a state, with Stevenson replacement George L. Shoup as Idaho's first state governor.
1: So important was mining to the territory and the state of Idaho that the state seal prominently features a miner as one of the two figures. Emma Edwards Green, the designer of the state seal, said of her design, quote, As mining was the chief industry of the state and the mining man the largest financial factor of the state at that time, I made the figure of the man the most prominent in the design. The pick and the shovel held by the miner and the ledge of the rock beside which he stands, as well as the pieces of ore scattered about his feet, all indicate the chief occupation of the state. The stamp mill in the distance, which you can see by using a magnifying glass, is also typical of the mining interest of Idaho. In representing the miner, I gave him the garb of the period suggested by such mining authorities as former United States Senator George L. Shoup of Idaho, former Governor Norman B. Wiley of Idaho, Former Governor James H. Hawley of Idaho and other mining men and early residents of the state who knew intimately the usual garb of the miner. Almost unanimously, they said, do not put the miner in a red shirt. Make the shirt a grayish brown, said Captain J.J. J. Wells, chairman of the huh. SEAL Committee, end quote.
0: Ah, that's so cool. I know, um, isn't that interesting? Yeah. The original booms in all of the mining areas tended to slow down after Idaho gained statehood, perhaps with the exception of Coeur d'Alene if only because their boom came so much later than in the other areas. After depressions in the 1870s and 1890s, mining investments struggled to gain capital, but after the turn of the century, many areas experienced major revivals. In fact, the greatest part of Idaho's mining wealth wasn't found until after statehood in 1890. Many mining operations in the 20th century branched into metal ores that mines had not produced before. Cobalt, zinc, uranium, tungsten, and even monazite, which is a
1: source of other rare elements such as thorium and cerium,
0: became the primary products from Idaho mines beginning in the early 1900s. After 1900, many of the mine owners attempted large-scale mining projects through stamp mills, hydraulic mining, concentrators, and dragline,
1: which required dragline excavators, a heavy piece of equipment that drags a bucket across the surface of a mine.
0: Operations though some small-scale placer mining efforts did produce some big mineral hauls.
1: Both World War I and World War II created shortages of minerals that proved to be boons for many mines. In just one example, the Stibnite mine, which produced antimony,
0: used to increase the hardness of alloy metals,
1: tungsten, gold, mercury, and silver, became the second largest producer of antimony in the United States after wartime shortages in 1943. However, World War II also led to the closure of several quote-unquote non-essential mines, putting money towards mines that were most productive for the war effort. Through 1959, the mines of the state of Idaho produced between $450 million worth of silver, and through 1984, 2.9 million ounces of gold. Just between 9 and $20 billion.
0: Depending on the quality of gold and price of gold.
1: And this came just from the Boise Basin.
0: As you just heard, the majority of Idaho's mining efforts died out by the turn of the century, or the 1950s at the latest. While this resulted in a loss of livelihoods for hundreds of thousands of miners in the region, us modern-day adventurers are the ones who gain from the boom and bust of mining in the state. GhostTowns.com lists nearly 100 ghost towns throughout the state, most of which can be visited in some way, though not all of them were founded as mining towns. While listening to our podcast and researching things on your own can give you an idea of what these towns might have been like, nothing can give you a true sense of what these small mining towns might have been like or felt like in their heydays like visiting them yourself. No matter where you are located or visit in the state, There's an old mining ghost town you can probably visit within only a few hours. We highly recommend visiting some ghost towns this summer. It's a perfect COVID summer activity because no one else is around. Visitidaho.org recommends several locations.
1: And we agree. So the first of these locations is Bonanza and Custer. These are sister cities in the Salmon Chalice National Forest in central Idaho, and they survived off one another as miners flocked to the area to find gold in the Yankee Fork in the 1870s and 1880s. In 1881, Bonanza had a population of 600, the the largest settlement in the area, but Custer soon became the center of the Yankee Fork region. In 1889, most of Bonanza burned down, resulting in many residents moving to Custer. By 1911, the towns were abandoned. Custer now includes a museum about the Gold Rush era, and Bonanza has a cemetery that you can visit.
0: And less than 50 miles east of Bonanza and Custer, Bay Horse was established in 1864 after a few gold veins were found, but population really boomed after several silver veins were found about a decade later. Mining at Bay Horse peaked in 1888, which was also the last year that the mines operated at full capacity. The smelter and the majority of the mines were closed by 1897, though some mines continued to produce until 1925. In 1976, the entire town was placed in the National Register of Historic Places, and in 2006, the state purchased it and made it part of the Yankee Fork State Park. If you visit Bayhorse today, you can see the Stamp Mill, the Wells Fargo Building, And the charcoal kilns, which were used to make charcoal to smelt the ore pulled from the mines.
1: Now, as we have mentioned several times on this podcast, (laughs) one of the best Uh, places, and I think one of the sort of best, maybe not even best maintained, but one that has the most places to see is Silver City. And it's only a couple hours south of Boise. At its height in the 1880s, it had a population of about 2,500 and around 75 businesses in town. Many of the mineral veins were depleted by 1890, but the town was never completely abandoned until after World War II, after which the population was mostly seasonal. In 1972, the town was placed on the National Register for Historic Places. If you visit Silver City, you can see several standing buildings, including the old brewery, the church, the school, and ruins of various homes, the firehouse, and even closed-off openings of old mines closer to the city, and you can also visit the cemetery. It, to this day, remains one of my favorite places to visit in the state.
0: Ah, oh, it's so cool.
1: It's so fun.
0: Uh, next is called the Silver Valley because of the mining boom that happened in the northern panhandle.
1: Which we have covered several times throughout the podcast, both in this season and other seasons.
0: The old mining ghost towns that you can visit include Kellogg, Murray, Jem, Molen, Wardner, and Wallace.
1: Though some of these towns aren't ghost towns, they still have some permanent residents.
0: Wallace and Kellogg, both with larger permanent populations, have several attractions and areas that harken back to the mining days, including mining tours in Wallace, Kellogg, and Burke, mining and smelting museums, and railroad museums. We know very well that northern Idaho is a mecca for mining history, and we cannot recommend visiting those historic towns and sites enough.
1: And then one of the last bigger ones uh, is Idaho City, and we know that Idaho City played a central role in the mining history of the territory in the state and in the history of the penitentiary, and visiting it today is an incredibly fun experience. As we know, Idaho City was the biggest city in the West in its heyday, but after mining in the town collapsed, population hit its lowest at near 100, making it technically a ghost town. Now the population is around 485, but it still retains a historic small-town feel. Idaho City is great for both history buff and outdoorsy types who enjoy hiking, as there are several hiking trails around the town. You can take a self-guided tour or a guided walking tour and stop by the Boise Basin Museum. They even still have the walls of the old wooden territorial prison to look at and walk through. If you live in Ada or Canyon Counties or Boise County, a visit to Idaho City is a perfect day trip for the whole family.
0: Yeah, and you might see me uh, at the spa there at the uh, old hot springs. (laughs) So one of my and uh my wife's favorite spots to go. Of course, you know, this is only a few of the vast amount of old mining and agricultural ghost towns in the state. If you want a more complete list of ghost towns in the state for your summer vacation plans, check out ghosttowns.com. It's such a fascinating resource.
1: It is. It's really and like it's it's all reported by I don't know if they're residents or people who have recently visited, so they it is mostly up to date. So. Mhm. Mining remains an important industry throughout the state, though it is not as central to the state as it once was. According to thediggings.com, an online database of mining using records from the Bureau of Land Management and the United States Geological Survey, since the 1860s there have been 244,780 mining claims made in the state of Idaho. 30,034 of those remain active. The USGS has records of 6,345 mines in Idaho. According to the Idaho Geological Survey in 2021, the Coeur Mining District remains in the top 10 silver producers globally. Mines in Idaho produce mostly phosphate,
0: currently the largest segment of the mining industry, pumice, used for things like concrete,
1: garnet, feldspar, lead, and zinc.
0: On January 24, 2022, The Atlantic published an article by Michael Holtz titled, Idaho is Sitting on One of the Most Important Elements on Earth, wherein Holtz describes the future of mining in Idaho, cobalt. Cobalt is, quote, a hard silvery gray metal used to make heat-resistant alloys for jet engines and, more recently, most of the lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles, end quote. With the rise of hybrid and electric vehicles, the Idaho Cobalt Belt, a 35-mile stretch of sedimentary rock with some of the largest cobalt deposits in the country underneath the Salmon Chalice National Forest, may be one of the most important mining regions currently in the United States. At least six mining companies have applied for permits to operate in the region, but only one. Gervois Global has started to build a mine. Idaho once was home to the only cobalt mine in the United States, the 10,830-acre Blackbird Mine, which closed in the 1980s, leaving a legacy of massive environmental pollution. The ensuing cleanup has cost over $100 million and since then, quote, Federal regulations required Gervois to post a 30.8 million dollar reclamation bond to fund cleanup activities after the mine closes. End quote.
1: As Holtz reported, Gervois estimates that its mine in the Idaho cobalt belt will produce 1,915 metric tons of cobalt annually, enough for about 160,000 electric vehicle batteries. End quote. This massive operation provides an American response to the other major cobalt-producing area in the world, the Democratic Republic of Congo, an operation that suffers from major human rights violations, including poor wages, child labor, and long-term health effects of the workers. U.S. geologists estimate that Dervoy's company claims encompass more than 40,000 metric tons of cobalt, quote, enough to fulfill U.S. demand for five years, end quote. But it is not known exactly how much cobalt will be pulled from the Idaho cobalt belt in the future. No matter what happens in Idaho from now on, it seems clear that mining will always be a part of the state, its history, and its economy. Oh,
0: that's, it's so fascinating because mm-hmm. of this attempt to make electric vehicles to help the environment mm-hmm. while destroying some environment to, yeah. to extract it, to create those things. Right. So.
1: Yeah, and if you, that article is an amazing article because he not only yeah. it's I think it's like six or seven or eight pages long um, and he talks to former miners uh, who worked in cobalt. He's also ta- he also talks to people who live in the nearby towns that uh, died after the Blackbird mine shut down um, and then he talks about the legacy of environmental degradation and, and pollution that was left. It is a fascinating read. When I read it, it was right before we had started writing and I was like, I have to include this. It just has to be talked about because you know, we still have, as we talked about, the gold and the silver and, and these other minerals, but cobalt may be the future of, uh, you know, the mining industry in the state for a while. And so it'll be really interesting to see where that goes with this demand for electric vehicles and stuff like that. So really wow, interesting yeah. article and, and really interesting food for thought as we move forward.
0: Wow. Well, Sky. Whoa. <laughs> great work you did such a good job i have oh, to say you. that sky did so much writing and research for this season as i have been uh, pulled away from the podcast for uh, <laughs> other purposes uh, working as the interim historic sites administrator so big kudos big shout out to sky on this season nicely well, thank done
1: you. thank you i'm happy to do yeah. it researching and writing is what i do literally um it's cool and it's it's what i want to do for my job so i'm happy to do it it's and it's you know thankfully it's a subject that i is very near and dear to my heart so happy to do it yeah um i'm glad it wasn't a total jumbled mess <laughs> <laughs> um and uh i think i think we did it again another season yeah. in the books
0: oh my gosh excellent everybody i hope you have great summers lined up and fun stuff to explore and there's so much to explore here in our very own state so mm-hmm. thank you for listening and uh tagging along
1: and uh, hopefully right. we'll be back sooner rather than later with the with some more stories that we all will find quite fascinating
0: yeah back to our old format that we both loves <laughs> all right everybody thank you so much for listening you're all wonderful do your own time
1: do your own number
0: we'll catch you soon
1: season 7 out if you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show but it helps others find us as well if you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode follow our facebook group at behind gray walls podcast we have a podcast instagram as well You can find us on Instagram at behind gray walls pod.